I, when I was asked to preach this morning, I said, well, do I need to do a Christmas text? And No, you can do whatever you want. And I said, no, it's December 27th. I better do something that's related to Christmas. So I decided to do something from Matthew 1. Normally we look at the story from Luke 1 and 2 that focuses on Mary. This morning I'm going to focus on the story of Joseph. So Matthew 1 focuses on Joseph more than on Mary. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, just a question. Have you ever made a decision and then wished even a little bit later that you had had more information? Like more information comes to light and you realize, oh boy, that wasn't a good decision. Or have you ever been blessed enough to get the right information before you made a bad decision? I think most of us have had both of those kinds of experiences. I used to have a couple of dogs. One was a Sheltie Shepherd mix, and the other was a Labrador. He just would kind of go along with whatever she, want, she did. And there, we, we had parked by this field uh, somewhere out west, Nebraska or someplace like that, and there was two calves there. Well, my shepherd Sheltie, being the, the herder that she was, decided to chase those calves up over the hill. And my Labrador went along because he was just kind of a follower of the pack. And there was a piece of information that they were lacking. The piece of information that they were lacking was that the entire herd was on the inside of that hill. And so I watched them take off after those two calves, and the two calves went skipping off over the hill. And then about five seconds later, the two dogs came whipping back over the hill at a full run. And then the whole herd was like coming after them. And the dogs cleared that fence like it was not there, and they kind of went back behind the truck, and they were kind of, and the cows all came to the, to the fence, and they were kind of looking, and I think that had they known a little more information, those dogs would probably not have decided to chase those calves. Maybe they would have. They might not have been that smart, but on a more serious note, I, I was a senior in college at the College of Engineering at the University of Illinois, and I was working on a project. Everybody had to complete a project to graduate. It was a big deal. It was a big software project I was doing. And I was with my advisor, and I didn't realize it, but I was not doing a good enough job. I was not on the right track, let's put it that way. And I was in my advisor's office, and he was trying to explain to me what he thought was going on, but I was more interested in talking than listening. And I remember he was just not going to try to push, it, push his advice on me, so he sort of backed off. And I started to walk out the door, and maybe by the grace of God, I like stopped and turned around and asked the most important question I asked in my entire college career, which was, do you think I can finish this? And he answered, I don't think you can the way that you're going right now. And I finally like stopped and went back and asked him, okay, so what should I do? 
And he set me on the right track. And very quickly, that, that weekend, I worked really hard and kind of got myself on the right track. And eventually, I was able to get that project done. But the moral of that story was I almost walked out of that office thinking I was okay. And I just had enough whatever common sense to turn around and, and, and ask him what I needed to do. So I got the right information and it kind of set me on the right track. Well, this morning we're going to be reading from Matthew 1:18 through 25. And this passage talks about Joseph who had a plan based on the information that he had, but there was more information that he needed in order to make a better decision. And so we're going to learn about what Joseph had to learn to change course from going one direction to going a different direction. He needed to get God's perspective on what was going on. So, Amelia uh, read those verses. I didn't ask anybody to read from, from chapter 1, verse 1 on through, because as many as you, of you know, there's, there's mostly names in there. And actually, if had I known it was Amelia, I might have gone ahead with it because I, I think she could have handled it. But um, it's, it's basically the genealogy. Um, so let's, I'm going to say a few things about the genealogy because it helps to set up where we are and it raises some important issues that, that Matthew's going to answer in the, the last verses. So in our passage in 1825. So um, Matthew 1 verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus is called Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, we need to note that Christ was not a name. That wasn't his last name. Christ is a title, and it comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, or where we get our word Messiah, and the Greek word Christos, which is where we get our word Christ, obviously. And it means the anointed one or the king. It was used to, uh, for, for David when he was anointed king. He became the anointed one. He became the king. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the anointed one. We also learn in this genealogy, in, in, in the introduction to this genealogy in chapter 1, verse 1, that... He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, everybody knew that the promised son of David was going to come from the line of David, obviously. So the Christ, the Messiah, was going to come from the line of David. And that was pretty well known. When, when the wise men that we just sang about, the Magi, came in, in the next chapter, they went to Jerusalem and asked, well, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? And everybody said, well, the city of David, Bethlehem. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. But at the time that Jesus was born, there had not been a king in Israel for over 600 years. So if we read through this genealogy, we see that starting in verse 2, we get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the patriarchs, 
all the way down through verse 6, and Jesse the father of David the king. Then the next section, we run down through the sons of David, the king after king after king, until we get to verse 11, where it says, uh, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. At that point, the kingship ended. And so then after the de deportation to Babylon, it says that Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, on down through Zerubbabel. And finally we get down to verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph. So that's been the pattern we've seen all the way through. So the father of so-and-so, Eliad the father of Eleazar, verse 15. Eleazar the father of Mathan. Actually, maybe I shouldn't have. I'm kind of glad I didn't ask anybody to read this. I'm having trouble reading myself. Um, and then Jacob, the father of Joseph. But notice the pattern shifts here. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Well, that's interesting. It completely changes the, the pattern. And it almost looks like what we're saying here is that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. In fact, that's what it is saying. Matthew very carefully arranges the language to say that Jacob was the father of Joseph, but Joseph was the husband of Mary from whom Jesus was born. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 1, it said that Jesus was the son of David. So that raises a question. How is Jesus the son of David? If he's born from Mary, but not from Joseph. So if you're taking notes, or if you're drawing pictures about the sermon, put a little line there, and then write David question mark, because that's a question that comes up here. How is David going to be the, the father of Jesus? How is Jesus going to be the son of David? So David question mark, just Put that out there, and then we'll come back to it in a little bit. So that's a question that, that, that Matthew has to address because it sort of screams from verse 16. And then we read in verse 17 that Matthew mentions 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. There's all sorts of speculation about exactly why he did that, and I don't have an answer, so we're just going to move on. Um, verse 18 now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So now that's the introduction to all that's going to happen. So Matthew is going to unfold this story of Jesus in three stages. And so the first stage is Joseph's perspective and plan. The second stage is God's perspective and plan. And then the third stage is Joseph's response. So the big idea, and that is uh, mentioned by Malachi before, Jesus the Christ the promise, is the promised son of David who will be born of a virgin and who will save his people from their sins. So Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, is the promised son of David who will be born of a virgin and who will save his people from their sins. So the first stage of Matthew's presentation here 
of the birth of Jesus comes in verses 18 and 19. So we see Joseph's perspective and plan. So Joseph is faced with a hard decision. So it says in verse 18 that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, we need to understand that in those days, a betrothal was more serious than an engagement today. So today, people get engaged, and then if they want to call it off, they call it off, and they, you know, they give back the ring or whatever. In my case, I gave Janet a guitar. I guess she, she wouldn't have given that back to me, but that's okay. Um, it's, it, it didn't come to that. We got married. That's the end of that story. Um, in this case, Mary's betrothed to Joseph, and that means that it's a very formal transaction, and they were actually called, they could be called husband and wife. So Joseph could say, Mary is my wife, even though they had not gone through the final marriage ceremony, which is what they went through, and then the woman came to live in the home of the man. And so Joseph and Mary had been betrothed, but they had not gone through the the marriage ceremony. So she had not yet come to live in his home. Then it says that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we get so little information here that there's endless speculation about what happened. So perhaps she's beginning to show a little bit. We know that when she went to Elizabeth, she stayed there for three months. So she went to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist, but she was six months along already. And so Mary went to see her, and then she stayed with her for three months until the time that Elizabeth gave birth. So it may be that Mary was beginning to show that she was with child. In Luke chapter 1, we read that Mary was visited by an angel who announced to her, this is Gabriel, announced to her that she was going to give birth, that she was going to uh, be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was going to create this child inside her. But meanwhile, back in Nazareth, Joseph has been working away in his carpenter shop, And he might not be aware of any of this going on. Now, it's possible that Mary tried to tell Joseph something that, hey, you know, the angel Gabriel came to me. But it's possible that she went off and went to Elizabeth first just to kind of make sense of all all of it. And so, but in any case, whether Joseph had heard and didn't believe it, or was still trying to figure out what was going on, or he hadn't heard yet, he knows he's not the father, and he knows that there had to be a father somewhere, and he's not necessarily certain yet that it's the Holy Spirit, even if he's heard that. So from the human perspective, he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan in verse 19, but before we get there, Matthew tells us some information that he hasn't yet made clear to Joseph, and that is that this is, she was with child from the Holy Spirit. So we get a little information that Joseph doesn't have yet. 
Okay, so verse 19 says that Joseph then comes up with a plan. Now, Joseph is a just man. That means he wants to do what is right. And he doesn't want to put her to open scandal or shame. So clearly, the law says that this is a bad thing. In fact, the law says that if you, if a betrothed woman gets involved with another man, that they should both be stoned. Now, in the time of Mary and Joseph, the Jews weren't in the habit of stoning people, but it would have been a lifelong scandal. It would have been a bad situation for Mary. She would have been disgraced pretty much for the rest of her life. Joseph didn't want to put her through that, even though it probably would have gotten out anyway. So he, his plan is, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to put her away secretly, maybe with one or two witnesses. I'll take care of it. And then I can sort of move along and she can kind of get on with her life, whatever that will be. Maybe she can move out of town, whatever. It was not a bad plan from a human perspective, although it still assumed that Mary was guilty of something. So he was doing the best he could with the information that he had, but he didn't have all the information. So sometimes, we can learn a few things from this before we move on, sometimes we think we know what's best for us, even with good intentions. But we don't seek out God's perspective. I get students sometimes that, that tell me what their, their guiding life philosophy is. And I recently got one that said it was the Celestine Prophecy, and I had to look that up. Apparently, it's, it's some, some recycled New Age ideas that this guy found weren't all that interesting. And so then he created this, this story about a secret manuscript in Peru and, and government officials and church officials that were trying to keep it from, from him so that he couldn't make it public. And there's these 12 insights, and, and I'm... This person is basing his life on this blather? There, there's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. <laughs> and yet, based on some recycled New Age ideas that were popularized in a story, somebody's going to put their life on the line for that? Another book that came out, I think it was uh, Rhonda Byrne, The Secret. Anybody heard of that book? It's basically recycled, Norman Vincent Peale, recycled, uh, Madame Blavatsky, positive thinking. You confess it, you get it, it comes to your life. Well, that's just essentially self-centered, narcissistic self-deception. That's what God says about it. But see, people fall for this because they don't pay attention to what God's perspective is. So, sometimes we can have a good plan, but we're missing God's perspective. And Joseph had only half the story here. So, this brings us to the second stage of this process, which is God's perspective and plan. So, God tells Joseph what is happening, 
and what to do. And that's in verses 20 through 23. And there it is in front of everybody. So the angel appears to Joseph. Look at verse 20. Uh, verse 20. As he considered these things, so he's resolved to divorce her. Behold, Matthew loves to use the word behold when something important is happening. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph already knew he was a son of David, but when an angel calls you son of David, it probably means you better pay attention. Because he's telling him something important here. Son of David means that you are now identified as qualified to be the father of the Messiah, who will be the son of David. Now, Joseph still can't figure this out yet, and we haven't been told that part of the story yet, but he's called the son of David. And now he gets the explanation. Hey, Mary is with child through the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this was done from the Holy Spirit. Now, I just have to stop for a second and talk about something that's very important for the Christian faith. The Christian faith is based on a few key points, one of which is that Jesus Christ was born of a woman but placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became a man and was placed as a human embryo in the womb of a woman. So we call that the, the virgin conception. Technically not the virgin birth, but I guess it was. But the virgin conception of, of Mary. So Jesus is the Son of God, fully God, and fully man. So that is foundational to the Christian faith. So I'm sorry to give you doctrine. I know the, anybody know the ASL sign for boring? You, you, do, you bore a hole in your nose. Boring. That's my, my boring piece for the morning is... Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He became a human being for us. So the angel gives him a command. Do not be afraid to take Mary your wife, which basically the command is take Mary as your wife. And then the angel gives a second command. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the Hebrew name of God. We translate that the Lord. So the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. So a second foundation of the Christian faith is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So we hear this idea of salvation so often that I think sometimes we, we forget its 
true and full and lasting significance and, and all that it means for us. So our ultimate problem is not our genes, it's not our upbringing, it's not our experiences, even though those have effects on us, they, have, they, they impact us, of course. But our ultimate problem is that we live in a world of sin and we are sinners. And the only solution that we have doesn't come from ourselves. Well, why is that? Well, every one of us has sinned against our creator, holy God. Every one of us has sinned. Essentially, what we've said to God is, you will not rule over me. But you say, well, I never said that to God. Yeah, you did. Essentially, when you sinned, you said, God will not rule over me. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to be independent. I don't need God. God is just, and he must punish sin. If God did not punish sin, he would stop being God. So God has to punish sin. And that includes me, that includes you, because we've all sinned. And some people will say, well, I've never committed a big sin. I've only, I, I might have lied a few times, but I've never, I've never done a big thing and a big sin. But a few chapters from, from this chapter, Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the sins in your mind is the same as the sin out in, in, in the world. If I lust after a woman in my heart, that's the same as committing adultery. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, if I hate somebody, that's the same as murder. Well, I never killed anybody. Yeah, if you hate them in your heart, that's the same as murder. Why? Because if I had the opportunity at that moment and I wasn't afraid of the consequences, I'd kill that person. That's what sin is. Paul wrote that if I covet somebody else's stuff, that's idolatry. That's the same as creating an idol and worshiping it. So sin is hardwired into us. And I'm helpless to do anything about it. God has to do something about it. And that's what we're reading about. God did do something about it. He put that little baby in the womb of Mary so that he could come and save his people from their sins. But what does salvation mean? Well, it means that we're forgiven of our sins. We're no longer under the punishment, under the frown, under the anger of God. And it also means that all our sins, Harry prayed, Harry prayed this in his prayer, all our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Now that has enormous practical benefits to us. So I do not have to be controlled by my sin. For example, I don't have to keep beating myself up over my failures. How many people, I'm one of them, will rehash stuff that I've done and try to like, get it right in my head. Oh, if only I had done that. If only I had done that. 
What the forgiveness of sins says is, it's done. You don't need to do that. I forgave it. What I want to free you to do is I want to free you to be able to love people in the present. Love people today. Freedom, of sin, freedom from sin means that I am free from those sins so that I can love. I can be just. I can be good today in the present. So these truths that sound dry and boring actually have a lot of practical significance. Forgiveness means that I can pick myself up and try again. If that wasn't the case, I'd be done. One time, one strike, you're out, you're done. No, forgiveness means I can pick myself up. How many of you who have taught a child to walk, the first time the child fell, would you say, ah, I'm done with you, you're never going to learn how to walk, forget it. No, you keep picking them up, you keep encouraging them. So when we fall and God says, no, it's okay, I forgive you, try again. And then we try again and we, 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 we mess up because no, it's okay, try again. We're getting stronger. We're learning how to walk. We're learning how to do what's right. We're learning how to help people. We're learning how to serve people. We're learning how, we're learning how to be kind when people aren't kind to us. Are we going to fail? Yes, but we can pick ourselves up and be forgiven, and God will then set us on our feet, and we can try again. That's what forgiveness of sins means. So Matthew tells us that Jesus is going to forgive us of all of our sins. And he also says that this plan just didn't just start now. It's been the plan from the beginning. So verses 23 and 24 tell us that 700 years before this, Isaiah had already prophesied this. I wish I could camp out here, but I can't. So the, the prophecy says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Note in verse 22, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Matthew says that Isaiah spoke the word of God. The Lord spoke through Isaiah. That's significant. Then he says the virgin will conceive. So Isaiah is looking ahead 700 years into the future to this event. Now there's no end of controversy about exactly what Isaiah meant. But if you're taking notes, let me just give you a couple of scripture references. I, I can't camp out here. But Isaiah 7:14, we read that earlier. And then Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah 9, I'm sorry, Isaiah, blah, blah, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. All of those point to a child who's going to come in the future to reign and rule and be a righteous king. So all of those scriptures show us that Isaiah is pointing to this time. And in that scripture back in Isaiah, he says that you're going to call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So you will call his name Jesus. He will be called Emmanuel. 
He will save us from our sins so that God can be with us. Those two names go together. So what happens when God reveals his perspective? Well, we'll see in a moment that, that Joseph is obedient. What we can learn here is that there's a couple of options. When God reveals his word and his perspective to us, there's a few things that we can do. One option is to reject it. God can't be a trinity. One God, three persons, that makes no sense to me. I don't believe it. God could not become a human being. I mean, God's infinite. He's holy. He's out there. He couldn't become a human being, a little baby. I mean, human beings are finite. I'm, I'm, I'm limited. God couldn't do that. I don't believe it. What you're saying is, God can't do anything that you can't understand. So God's limited by my imagination. I don't understand it and therefore I don't believe it. That's a dangerous thing to say. As if God cannot be any bigger than my mind. Isn't the God who created my mind bigger than my mind? a thought to take. I mean, when a kid makes a Play-Doh little castle on the ground, isn't the, even, even that child, isn't that child bigger than the Play-Doh castle? Okay, so isn't the God who made my mind bigger than my mind? So one option is just say, you know what? I don't understand it, forget it. The other option is to accept what God says, to allow God's word to shape my understanding, to humble myself if I have got an attitude, and let God's thoughts be above my thoughts. Doesn't mean I need to shut my mind down. God wants me to think and try to understand and be... um, aware of what his word says and and use my brain to to understand and flesh it out. But ultimately, I need to understand and realize that there are some things that are beyond me that I'm not going to be able to comprehend. So I have to believe the word of God more than my own thoughts. And that's what Joseph did. So third step, Joseph's response Joseph obeys God fully. Now, for those of you who took the note and those of you who are drawing pictures, remember what was on the, the line out there? It said, David, question mark? Okay, I hope some people wrote that down. I'm going to be checking with you later. How did Jesus become the son of David? Well, it says in verse 24 that when Joseph arose from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Those are the exact same words that we saw the angel say. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he called his name. That's exactly what the angel said to do. You will call his name Jesus. 
Matthew then uses the exact same words, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew is underscoring Joseph's obedience. He did exactly what the angel told him to do. In the middle of that, Matthew gives us an important fact that Joseph took Mary, went through the marriage ceremony, took Mary into his home, but he had no relations with her until after the child was born. This just underscores the fact that this child was born of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph was fully obedient, and he named Jesus. When a father names a child in that society, he is taking legal responsibility for that child. He adopted Jesus. That's how Jesus now legally becomes the son of David, the son of Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of da da la 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 the son of David. So now Jesus is legally the son of David. That's how he can be the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what do we learn? When God reveals his will to us, he wants us to obey fully. We all know what incomplete obedience looks like. Anybody, when their mother asked them to clean up their room, did anybody ever once in a while not do it immediately or not do it happily? Okay, I don't have to ask that question. I think, I think we can all say yes. We understand what partial obedience is. Saul, King Saul was famous for partial obedience and he ended up losing his kingdom over it. God wants us to obey fully. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn more and more to do that. Salvation means that God's grace is on us and we can grow in obedience. So in conclusion, Jesus is the focal point of history. We saw three stages to this story. So Joseph, his human perspective, then God and God's perspective comes to Joseph, and then finally Joseph responds to God by obeying him fully. Jesus is the legal son of David, and through his death, he brings blessing to the nations. That was the promise to Abraham. Let me close with a, a true story. On December 7th, 1941, most of you realize that that was Pearl Harbor Day, the day that the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. But that morning, about 7 in the morning, there was two radar operators, and they saw this giant blip show up on the radar. Radar was very primitive, and nobody was an, well, very few people were experts at it. But one of the guys said, well, we, we better call this in. So they called over to the Radar Information Center, and the man over there on the phone gave some very famous words. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Now, to give him credit, number one, he had only been doing this job two days. He wasn't very well trained. And number two, there had been a scheduled a flight of B-17 bombers coming from the mainland to Hawaii 
to arrive that morning. So he thought that's what it was. But still, they had the information. But the information never made it to the command. And as a result, the Americans were not prepared. God has given us information in his word. The question is, are we going to use it? He wants us to use it. The path to freedom and safety is in obeying the word of God. That's what God offers us. It's not a, it's not a shackle, it's freedom. Let's pray.